0: Oh, and welcome to this bonus episode of Lactin's One Step Ahead. I'm your host, Kyle Anthony, and pleased to share with you this special replay where Lactin's experts are discussing everything that you need to do to prepare for compliance with COVID-related regulatory requirements. If you're looking for the webinar video, handouts from this event, or other resources, please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode. Thanks again for tuning in with us today.
1: Well, welcome, uh, everybody, to our, our webcast. Um, uh, I am Ed Fenchholt. I am one of the directors of compliance services here at Lockton. Delighted to have you with us uh, again today. With me on today's webcast are my friends and colleague uh, colleagues, Mark Holloway. And Suzanne Bach. Uh, Mark's joining us from Winston-Salem, North Carolina on the East Coast. Suzanne can't get much farther west in the continental United States. She's in Portland, Oregon. Uh, So we're we're covering about three different time zones today. I'm in Colorado, but we're delighted to be with you. Um, By now, you should have received, uh, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, a quick shout out to, our assistants uh, uh, back in our virtual studio, Aaron Meyer and Shannon Hopfinger, and the ladies behind the scenes, without whom nothing good happens on these webcasts. So ladies, thank you very much for your help. Um, you should have received the handouts uh, for today's webcast. That's the, the copies of the slides. We also included about a seven page uh, grid um, that uh, summarizes some of the benefit related mandates, accommodations, and other things related to COVID-19 we'll be talking about today. A little handier piece than flipping back through the slides later if you wanted to review the slides or the material. Uh, as usual, you can pose us questions in the Q&A box on the screen. And after the webcast, um, uh, Shannon or Aaron will send us those questions, and we'll do our best to answer them in the time. Uh, that we've allotted for that. Uh, uh, I am going to have to bail out of this maybe a couple minutes early. Um, so it could be that, uh, if as usual, these things go a little bit long, it's kind of my MO. I guess I apologize in advance for that. But if it goes a little long, Mark and Suzanne will field those uh, questions. The webcast is being recorded. So if you had friends or colleagues who wanted to join us but couldn't, uh, no problem. They can, uh, they can tune in. We'll send the replay link out here uh, shortly. And I want to introduce uh, my co-pilot today. Uh, my cat, uh, Villanelle, uh, she's going She says hi, and she just sits in the lap because it's where she wants to be, and she will not be uh, denied in that regard. So, hopefully, she won't uh, chew on my uh, microphone cable. Uh, a couple, uh, a couple other things to talk about housekeeping items here, sure, real quickly. I can't be more excited uh, to announce that Lockton, uh, Lockton Benefit Services, uh, our shared services arm, our national shared services arm, has hired uh, an employment lawyer. Ms. Paula Day, a JD, nearly 30 years of experience in employment law, is uh, joining us to help um, service our benefits clients with their HR compliance. Issues now. If you are serviced by an, uh, by an account team out of uh, Kansas City or Omaha or Minneapolis or Detroit, um, that that uh, division of Lockton has its own uh, HR specialist, Stacy Engelman, and uh, Stacy will be the first point of contact for your HR questions. If you're serviced out of our Lockton Dunning offices, uh, Lockton Dunning has its own HR specialist as well. They'll be your initial point of contact. But if you're serviced by account teams elsewhere, you'll be delighted. I think. Think to, uh, to get to know uh, Paula Day uh, as time goes by. Uh, Arissa is a friend of mine. Our podcast series uh, is back for season four. Uh, episodes one and two are already out. Uh, so be looking for that if you have any interest. Our next webcast, uh, October 22nd, we'll be talking about ACA reporting in the year of COVID-19 and how much fun that's gonna be uh, early next year. Um, couple of webcasts to be determined. Uh, they're on the drawing board. We haven't set a date for them yet. Um, one is on, we have Paula. Uh, Paula Day talked to us about key HR compliance concerns for the balances of 2020 and in 2021. And then our, our colleague, uh, Jay Kirschbaum, uh, uh, has convinced me and beauty and the wonders of health reimbursement arrangements. So the, she says, she says, long forgotten, uh, the of HRAs and, and then how to fund them in a very effective way through corporate owned life insurance. So, pretty neat discussion. I think Jay's going to tee us up and talk us through that, uh, a little bit down the road. November 12th will be an election recap and a look ahead to federal health policy for 2021. And then on December 10, uh, Mark and uh, our colleague Rory Kane Acres will. Uh, take us through uh, the year in review as though any of us wanted to relive uh, 2020, but they're going to do that. Uh, Yeah, what a year it's been. Um, uh, I I saw this and it just made me chuckle uh, if I were to uh, take some liberties of the truth, I would tell you that I bought this for my granddaughter. I think this is a spoof product, but isn't it hilarious? It's so, it's so perfect. It uh, includes video conferencing, crying babies, and wine bottles, you know, just, just perfect. Uh, Before I slide. get into this, I want to say one thing uh, about a uh, development that we're going to be watching um, on your behalf. Uh, and that is the unfortunate, the untimely passing of Justice Ginsburg a few days ago, a uh, great jurist. Um, it looks like the president is going to fill that seat maybe even before the election. And uh, when that happens, there will be a six to three majority of. Uh, 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 justices on the Supreme Court appointed by Republican presidents, we might call them conservative justices. So maybe a 6 to 3 balance in favor of the conservatives on that court. Here's why in our ERISA world, this is so interesting. Uh, As you may know, we've talked about this a number of times in the past. There is a case pending today before the Supreme Court, they'll They'll oral arguments on this case uh, shortly after the election. The case is Texas v. U.S. and this is the case that rose out of a Fort Worth federal district court where the trial court, the district court uh, invalidated the Affordable Care Act, threw the whole thing out, uh, kicked out the individual mandate as unconstitutional now that the penalty has been reduced to zero. And then throughout the balance of the ACA for good measure, concluding that Congress would never have passed the ACA without the individual mandate. So if the individual mandate must go, so too must the rest of the law. A federal appeals court has heard that uh, case and uh, Mark, you correct me if I'm wrong, if my, if my memory is faulty here, but I believe the, the appeals court uh, upheld the idea that the individual mandate no longer is valid uh, as a tax. But the, uh, but I think the, I will the appeals court said that the, that the, uh, balance of the law, uh, can stand, uh, can, can withstand, uh, can, can, can stand on its own, if you will. So the Supreme Court's gonna rule on this question. And really the court, question for the court is gonna be, um, can we sever the individual mandate from the rest of the Affordable Care Act? And while Justice Ginsburg was alive, uh, I was pretty confident that the court would say, uh, sure, it can be severed. We can kick out the individual mandate and the rest of the law, uh, can stand. And I thought that because we'd have four votes the liberal justices, uh, Ginsburg, uh, Meyer, uh, uh, Breyer rather, uh, Sotomayor, and, uh, Kagan. And I thought Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice, he's kind of a moderate. Uh, I think he is pragmatic. He, he'd understand how hardwired this law is now into our society. Um, and he would side with the progressives and say that the bounds of the law can stand. I don't know what happens now. I really don't. The six to three conservative majority I don't know what happens to the Affordable Care Act. We'll get that opinion probably sometime in, uh, uh, Mark and Suzanne. I'm going to guess late, uh, late June, maybe the very end of the, of the term. Uh, if I were the Supreme Court, I would announce that decision on the last day <laughs> before I go out of town. Um, but it, it raises some really provocative questions. If the ACA is out, uh, what then? What happens then? So we'll keep an eye on that. But uh, uh, certainly, I think that question is uh, much more in play uh, than it was a week ago. Well, back to the task at hand. What we're going to do here is roll through a variety of COVID-related benefit mandates, accommodations, and other rules uh, that affect your benefit programs. Look. There's an awful lot going on in the, in the COVID-19 space uh, in human resources, in paid leave, um, return to work issues, workman's compensation, business liability. We understand that. We're targeting the ERISA questions uh, today, kind of level setting those for you, a little reminder. Because some of these rules are still uh, in force and in play, and will be for uh, quite some time, and we're just gonna we're gonna take these in series. So I'm gonna take one. I'm gonna I'm gonna toss the ball to Mark. He'll take one. Toss the ball to Suzanne. She'll toss the potato back to me, and uh, on we go until we finish. So let's get started. Um, next slide, uh, Aaron, please. I'm talking about a health care plan, group health care plan mandate uh, imposed by the Congress as part of the COVID-19 relief packages. This one relates to uh, mandatory coverage of testing, of um, uh, uh, testing for the coronavirus, um, with no cost sharing imposed on the member. Uh, this. Uh, mandate r- requires cost-free coverage for really almost any test at all. Uh, if the test has been approved by the FDA, uh, if the test is pending approval by the FDA, if the test manufacturer says it intends to submit the test to the FDA for approval, just about, uh, anything goes there. Um, the mandate applies to, uh, uh, the swab test where they, where they take the swab and take it up into your brain cavity pretty much. Um, uh, That's the test for the active infection. Uh, The mandate also applies to antibody testing, the blood testing, the serological uh, testing uh, to see if you've had uh, the the virus. Um, We think that this mandate can encompass, uh, require the plan to pay for even a home COVID-19 test, but uh, they need to be ordered by uh, a physician. This band aid includes not just the cost, uh, the coverage of the cost of the uh, COVID 19 test itself, but um, also requires the plan to cover the cost of related tests. Uh, that, that the doctor orders to rule out other possibilities. So, for example, you roll into your doctor, and this can be, by the way, this can be a virtual visit, doesn't need to be an in-person visit, but you roll in either virtually or in person to your doctor's office and you're not feeling well and you're displaying some symptoms that might be the flu, might be the coronavirus, and the doctor orders a series of flu-related uh, uh, diagnostic tests to rule out the flu, the plan has to pay for those tests too, as long as in the course of that visit, uh, the doctor also orders uh, a coronavirus uh, test. The mandate applies. Your group healthcare plan has to pay for these tests, whether they're performed in-network or out-of-network and, again, with no cost sharing. So if there's not a negotiated in-network rate for this, if the member goes to an out-of-network provider for these tests, the plan has to pay for that. What does the plan pay? plan pays whatever it negotiates with the health care provider. It may be one-off negotiations uh, uh, in certain cases. Uh, if there is no negotiated uh, uh, deal between the plan and the health care provider, then the plan pays uh, the provider's advertised rate on its uh, retail rate, basically, for that. Um, what about uh, making coverage of these tests available to employees? who are not enrolled in your group medical plan. So, you say, as an accommodation, might file this again, as we often do with these things under the no good deed goes unpunished label. You want to offer your employees who are not enrolled in your major medical plan the opportunity to get a COVID-19 test and have the employer pay for it. Suzanne's going to talk in a minute about how that's really better done as a return to work test. If you do this. Um, uh, kind of outside of the return to work environment, and you're providing these tests to people who are not enrolled in your major medical plan. You've just created another little medical plan for those people, and it's an ERISA plan, and that means it's subject to ERISA and you know reporting requirements and SPD requirements like COBRA, HIPAA. Uh, some ACA mandates uh, to cover preventive care that that little plan wouldn't be able to meet. So not a great idea to do that. Again, understand the motive, well-intentioned. Again, we filed it into the no good deed goes unpunished category, but uh, might not be the best uh, idea. Next slide. Um, this uh, mandate applies beginning March 18, 2020. And unlike a a typical federal mandates for your group health care plan, this one actually sunsets. It it disappears and it disappears with the expiration of the national health emergency declared by Health and Human Services. Now, that emergency is set to expire on October 23rd. It's been twice extended for 90 days. It may be extended again. The reason I mention this is Mark is going to talk in a minute about maybe the most important most challenging, uh, uh, most high-risk uh, uh, mandate on employers and the group plans, um, and that is tied to a different National care Emergency, one declared by the President. But the mandate I've been talking about is tied to uh, the health emergency declared by the Secretary of HHS, and again, that currently runs until October 23rd. Um, speaking of mandates, there's another mandate that group health care plans must cover cost-free. Uh, any uh, uh, coronavirus preventive care uh, declared as such by the U.S. Vision services task force. Like that other mandate, this applies to virtually all group health care plans, including these MEC plans and minimum social coverage plans, these uh, little skinny Single slice of cheese pizza plans, we call them, that kind of came into vogue with the employer mandate. Doesn't apply to health FSAs, uh, dental plans, vision plans, things like that. Um, the timing of this is interesting. You know, uh, the U.S. Prevention Services Task Force, uh, you've heard before, this is the group that sets the list, the long list of preventive care services that a group health care plan must cover cost-free uh, under the ACA. There, uh, in that context, when that task force um, uh, makes a new recommendation, that recommendation becomes a hardwired mandate for the group health care plan beginning on the first day of the first plan year that follows one year after the recommendation is made. It's a highly accelerated timeline for this COVID-19 stuff, though. It was really like the vaccine, for example, be preventive care. Uh, here that that mandate takes effect 15 days after the task force recommends that. So, uh, and I don't see a sunset provision here. I think this one uh, this one will linger. Speaking of vaccines, the feds have recently rolled out their preliminary plans for distribution of a coronavirus vaccine. As you know, if you read the paper or you get your news uh, where I do like Facebook, uh, there are a variety of vaccines under uh, development, some in the UK, some here, some in Russia, apparently. Um, but, uh, but the feds have uh, now outlined uh, very generally sort of a phased approach to uh, getting these vaccines. Ed hoped he was going to be first in line or nearly first in line for one of these vaccines. You know, I'm 62, I'm in as a dangerous, yeah, Mark, you too, buddy. Or I yeah, I think man. you're 59, almost, okay. Um, yeah, uh, well, um, uh, you know, Ed, Ed's got a little hypertension. I work at Lockton, it's a high pressure place. Uh I was age 62, I'm kind of a high risk Category, you know. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll get an early vaccine, or I think about it. I'm not going to get an early vaccine. You know, these things are going to go as they should go, uh, early on to healthcare providers, first responders, quite likely to the U.S. military. You know, they're about uh, they're about uh, three quarters of a million people, I think, in uniform. Um, and uh, and they need uh, you know the vaccine first. So I don't know. Maybe next summer it gets in line. You know, for a vaccine, we'll see how this goes. Um, uh, this phased approach recognizes that there's going to be a limited number of vaccines uh, early on. Uh, later, they hope to uh, expand availability. Uh, phase three basically says we might need to make the COVID vaccine um, kind of part of the regular vaccination you know, schedule. So you get, uh, what is it, measles, rubella, um, you know, the mumps, you know, all those kinds. Maybe you get the coronavirus vaccine, you know, now at the same at the same time. Um, uh, states have uh, raised their hand and said, wait a minute, guys, you're, A, you're a little late coming to this party, telling us how this rollout's going to happen, and B, you're not telling us enough. Look, we can't plan at the state level for handling uh, vaccine distribution until we know a, how many doses we're going to get? Um, who uh, is supposed to get the first doses? We'd like some consistency across state lines in this regard. Uh, are we going to get our full allotment, or are you going to hold some back and distribute some to, I don't know, urgent care clinics, government-run clinics, uh, uh, pharmacy chains, you know, to handle these things? So a lot of unanswered uh, uh, questions. Much more to come, I think, um, on the uh, vaccine rollout. Well, as I mentioned a ago, uh, I think maybe the, one of the most important pieces of federal guidance concerns the tolling of some um, uh, group health care plan related deadlines uh, in ways and for periods that will, will strike you as a little remarkable. And to tell us about that is Mark Holloway. Mark?
0: All right, great. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, And I'm going to move quickly through this material um, just to reiterate what Ed said. I mean, at least as far as the 4 topics that I'm going to be talking about here on the webcast. um, This is the 1 that's the most pertinent because frankly, um, there's a lot here that can go wrong and I'll kind of touch on that uh, in a minute. So uh, what happened here, the Department of Labor and IRS issued guidance uh, back in April. Uh, that said, that plan sponsors had to disregard many of the plan deadlines due to COVID-19, uh, and those are the things we see highlighted on the slide. There, uh, obviously, obviously for HIPAA special enrollment requests, this is one of the things that has been um, impacted. This is if you lose other coverage, get marriage, uh, get married, or have a baby. Uh, most importantly, the COBRA timeframes, as far as COBRA elections, premium payments, and notice by members. Uh, those are also subject uh, to this deadline freeze. Uh, and last but not least, claim submission and appeals and requests for external review under under your health plan. Now, one important thing to note here, and this is a question I get from time to time, is um, the, the, the COBRA coverage um, maximum periods, either the 18, 18, 29 or 36 months, uh, those are not impacted by this guidance from uh, the Department of Labor and IRS. So those 18, or 18, 29, or 36-month deadlines continue to apply. Next slide, uh, For how long are these deadlines suspended? Well, what we have is well, what we affectionately refer to as the outbreak period. And the outbreak period began on March 1. Uh, and as Ed alluded to a couple minutes ago, it goes until 60 days following The expiration of the presidential national emergency declaration. Uh, And, by the way, the president has not yet ended um, the emergency declaration. So the way things are going to work this outbreak period is going to spill into this fall into this winter and possibly even uh, early into next year. So, what happens is, if you have any of the applicable deadlines, we've talked about here under HIPAA, COBRA, or whatever. Um, with falling within the outbreak period, uh, they're recalculated by cutting uh, the outbreak period out of the calendar. In other words, what we're doing is here we're just pushing the pause button here. Um, and as we say at the bottom of the slide here, that means these requests, um, you know, are, are going to be, be deemed timely even if they're not made until months after the standard deadline. And I've got a few examples here that'll show you about how long this can really drag out. Next slide, please. So. Uh, a note, just some, some notes of clarifications here before I uh, march into the example here. It's not that the deadlines, it's not that the deadlines will fall within the outbreak period are deferred then fall due on that date. Rather, the operate period is simply ignored on redetermining the deadlines. And again, I think this will be hopefully to be pretty clear when I walk through the examples here. Now, one preface, next slide please, Aaron, on the example here. Um, in order to try to illustrate this stuff to you guys, um, I had to make some assumptions here as far as these examples. Uh, and one assumption I made is that the national emergency declaration ends on October 31st. Now, again, that has not happened. Uh, the president has not declared the end of national emergency, but just you know, for purposes of the ex- three examples I have here. We're going to assume that the national emergency ends on October 31st. So, again, the way it was, we pack 60 days on to that, so that gives us until uh, December 30 as the outbreak period. The outbreak period, again, in this hypothetical that I'm using here, uh, it starts on March 1 and goes through December 30. So, let's look at the three examples I have here. The first example, we have Joe, all right? Joe was furloughed on April 1st, 2020. Loses his health coverage, and Joe is provided his COBRA packet on April 20th. Now, the way things work in a normal world, this is the standard deadline discussion. There, uh, Joe has 60 days to elect COBRA following the issuance of the notice, and if Joe um, Joe's deadline to elect COBRA would be June 19th, and his first premium payment would be due um, at 45 days after that on August 3rd. That, that, that ain't how it works during the outbreak period here. Joe's 60-day frame to elect uh, cover is frozen until the outbreak period ends on December 30. So begin, beginning December 31st, the 60-day election period begins. Joe can now elect coverage by March 1st of next year, 2021, to have it be retroactive to April 1st, uh, 2020 and his first payment isn't due until 45 days after he elects coverage. So again, this is not something normal that we have seen, at least in the 30 plus years that I've uh, been working, um, with Cobra. Uh, example number two here for Joe. Uh, he got this, uh, in this example, he got, uh, he had a qualifying event in September of 2019, elected Cobra was a good citizen, able to pay his premiums on a timely basis, uh, but the problem was uh, he did not pay his March 2020 COBRA premium on time. So, you know, and again, in the normal w- world we would live in, Joe would be simply out of luck. He would have had his uh, co- COBRA coverage canceled back to March 1st, uh, not so under the outbreak period. The Joe's 30-day uh, grace period clock is frozen until the outbreak period ends, on December 30th, then uh, it's premium payments for March through December are not due until January 29, 2021, 30 days after the um, outbreak period ends. Do so you guys get an idea of how this works? Last example here, this is a HIPAA special enrollment event also impacted by this guidance. Uh, we have Jane uh, who did not have, employee, did not have coverage under employer's plan, but guess what? She had a baby on February 15th, and the way the HIPAA special enrollment events rules work, if you're an employee and you didn't have coverage, um, if you can elect, you have 30 days to elect coverage for yourself, the new baby and your spouse, um, if, if you so desire. Um, so again, in the, in the standard, standard way the thing would work, jo, uh, Jane would have 30 days um, until March 16th to notify the plan uh, of the birth of the child and coverage would be retroactive Uh, to February 15th. Uh, Not so here because uh, Jane's special enrollment period uh, spills into the outbreak period. So it's frozen on March March 1st, 14 days into the 30-day requirement, all right? So the 30-day clock here for the HIPAA special enrollment does not resume again until December 30, and it runs for 16 more days. So this example, uh, Jane now has until Uh, January 15th, 2021, to elect coverage retroactive to February 15th, 2020. Uh, Next slide here. Now, uh, I mean, kind of the positives uh, and the negatives here, um, obviously, if you're a plan participant, this is good news because if you either uh, miss a premium payment or a deadline, uh, either intentionally or unintentionally, uh, you now have the ability to go back Elect coverage and get coverage, uh, retro, uh, retroactively reinstated. And obviously with all the furloughs and layoffs and all that, a lot of folks couldn't really, having cash flow issues, couldn't afford their premium payments. Now this rule gives them somewhat uh, of a benefit, uh, to go back and elect coverage. Uh, now for employers, um, you know, there's always been a risk of adverse selection with Cobra. Um, And obviously, here, as we're talking about um, some of the examples of people electing coverage back a year, I mean, that really brings the adverse selection uh, issue to a head. Um, I guess a couple things to note here, one would be for for both of you that are self-funded, you obviously want to check with your stop loss care and just ensure they're going to play along on this. Um, As far as communicating this to plan participants, um, earlier this year, we came up with a model. Uh, communication that um, our friend Ian, Ethan McWilliams drafted. Um, you know, there's not a fiat by the government to communicate these w- new rules, but we think it's a good idea to do so. Now, um, the last thing I want to just leave you with here uh, before I turn things over to Suzanne, and, and I think some of you that have turned into prior webcasts have heard me say this before. Um, the mission critical thing on the COBRA deadlines is make sure your COBRA vendor and your health plan, your health insurer insurer or third party um, claims payer are on the same page as far as how this is all gonna work. Uh, Because I have nightmares thinking about um, the possibility that there's some miscommunication between the COBRA vendor and the health plan and the coverage is left on for someone who was not yet elected and paid for COBRA, there's a huge expense that the plan has to eat. So uh, again, the issue there would be make sure, talk to your Cobra vendor, uh, and your, in your, uh, health plan, your health insurer or a TPA and make sure that they're all on the same, uh, same page about how, how these extended deadlines are going to work. Uh, and now you
1: know, yeah. and now you know what ERISA lawyers dream about. That? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Mark, one of the questions that we get a lot in this context is, or actually two questions. Um, Some employers go, well, you know, this isn't really much of a risk because uh, an employee really can't game the system. If They let seven or nine months of COBRA premiums, you know, pile up. They can't. They can't pay all that at one time for short coverage, but we forget that third parties can pay that. Hospitals can pay that premium, you know? Right. Uh, And the other question is, um, what if the employee has let seven or nine months of COBRA premiums to, you know, kind of build up? and when the outbreak period ends, they want to pay two months, you know, and not the whole uh, freight. Can they do that? And the feds have said, uh, well, they can, if they're already buying COBRA. This is an example about that. Um, I read that, guys, maybe a little too liberally. I kind of construed it to mean that someone first electing COBRA when the outbreak period ends, you know, could pay for the first couple of months and not the whole seven, nine months. That, that's I don't know if that's too conservative a view, but it's a provocative issue. Uh, it, it looks like it, it, that employee might not be forced uh, to make the entire um, retro premium payment. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and to your point, I just one last thought here, and before I, uh, we let Suzanne talk, it, you know, the provide the healthcare providers, hospitals have gotten wise to this issue about people paying people's COBRA premiums. I mean, obviously, if I'm in intensive care or something like that um the hospital wants to get paid and one way to do that would be to pay my uh pay my cobra premium. So and up on that, Suzanne, you're gonna to talk to us about COVID testing,
2: correct? Yeah, I have a cobra, so we're going to move on. Um, So thanks, Mark. Um, Just want to go back and touch on a couple things that Ed alluded to on on return to work testing. So many employers are rightly concerned about now bringing back employees to the workplace, um, about making sure that they don't create their own little coronavirus hotspot. Right. So um, there are a lot of things to think about with that. First of all, you're going to think about what kind of testing you're going to do. Um, In fact, some states are mandating employers test employees before returning them to work. For instance, in California, there was a letter sent to all skilled nursing facilities in the state requiring them to test. Healthcare professionals on a weekly basis. Um, and then even more frequently if they show symptoms. So um the first question that came to my mind was well, does the EEOC even allow employers to mandate testing? And the answer is definitively yes. You can require employees to submit to testing, but it really depends on what kind of test you're doing. So basically there's you know about three different kinds right now. Um Thank you, Erin, for my slides. Um, first, you know, basic fever screening, not very reliable, but certainly doable, um, throat swabs, nose swabs, more reliable, and that's actually the method that's recommended by the state in that California letter I mentioned. And then there's blood tests or serological tests, and these, the, EEO say, the EEOC gave us guidance over the summer saying these are maybe too invasive and not reliable, so you cannot require employees to submit to these blood tests. Um, you know, next year if we're still talking about coronavirus, maybe we'll be talking about other methods. I was just reading that. They're using dogs to sniff out coronavirus and airports and things. So stay tuned on, on other options. But then once you decide that you're going to do return to work testing based on, you know, the risk associated with your profession, um, you're going to think about who's going to pay for these tests. And, and Ed mentioned that this might be an issue. And I think it is if there are, is money coming out of an ERISA plan. To pay for return to work testing, because that's really better served as a business expense of the employer rather than a plan expense, especially if you're testing people that aren't even on the plan. So, there are some things to think about there and way too many details and facts that we would have to dig into to to make definitive calls. But I think the takeaway for you is that you can't shift any of that return to work testing. To employees, even though it's outside of the, the the plan mandate that that Ed talked about, even here the EEOC has said if you require it to return to work, you shouldn't shift that cost to the participant. They shouldn't be paying copays. They shouldn't be having to meet deductibles to get that testing. So enough about testing. Going to pass the baton to Ed to talk to us a little bit about the cafeteria plan flexibility.
1: Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. Go ahead and put the next slide, Aaron. Um, you know, uh, Ed is very seldom uh, prescient about anything, um, but uh, I nailed this one uh, back in you know back in March when the first shelter-in-place orders uh, began to roll in and, and schools were closing and daycare centers were closing and we began to get a rash of questions from our clients uh, from their employees who were being asked by their employees, look. Can I cancel my cafeteria plan medical election I'm a little short on you know cash right now? Uh you were in related questions like this. And and our answer was, do what you want. <laughs> you know, there are rules out there, you know this, the, these these uh, uh change in status rules under cafeteria plans, you can only allow these mid year pre-tax election benefit changes for certain reasons, and then the change has to be consistent with you know what's going on with the uh, employee. Well, um we said, look. Uh, do what you want. And just you know, do what you want to help your employees out. The IRS, uh, you, know, you know, Mark and I have been in this business 30 years. Suzanne about 20. Um, we 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 never see the IRS kind of look at these issues when they roll in. Uh, you know, for like a payroll tax audit or something for an employer. Um, and they don't they don't look at this in the best of times, and they're not going to look at it in the worst of times. Well, uh, what happened in maybe I think it was maybe late June uh, is the IRS. Uh, rolled out some guidance and said, uh, do what you want. You know, pr- pretty much do what you want. Uh, within some limitations, uh, the IRS limited them of four broad categories of things you can allow your employees to do without regard to those standard change in status rules and consistency rules and all of that. So, and that list, uh, and that list, uh, is here. The last bullet is significant. What employees really wanted more than anything else was they wanted their FSA balances refunded. They wanted the cash. And, uh, you know, I'm on record as having said, although I'll probably deny it now, uh, I'm on record as having said, look, if you can get your FSA vendor to refund that money, and you want to, take the, you want, you want to do it, I'd I do it. Again, the IRS, is just, they don't pay attention to much of this stuff. Um, well, the IRS said in the sky, and we knew they would, uh, like, you can't do that, you can't refund their FSA, uh, you know, balances, at least not if uh, the IRS were in the room with you. Next slide. You don't have to do any of these things. These are these are accommodations that the IRS makes available to you. And if you're going to do uh, them, you can do some and not all. Um, um, You can impose limitations on them. So, for example, if you want to allow an employee to reduce a health FSA benefit election for 2020 because of the the COVID 19 issue. Um, you could say, we're going to let you reduce your FSA election, say, from 2500 to to $1,000, but you can't reduce it below the level of the reimbursements you've already received this year. We're not going to write you a check, <laughs> you know, uh, out of our general asset account. So, um, so you, can, you can impose some limitations on this. One thing you, you want to do, if you're going to allow this kind of stuff, don't allow it just for the highly paid, uh, again, the IRS is not likely to police this. Uh, They don't really do a lot of discrimination testing uh, for cafeteria plans, but uh, uh, if they were to do that, why uh, one thing they would look at first and hardest is whether you gave the highly paid folks a better deal. Next slide. Uh, If you want to allow these accommodations, you can do it, but you can only do it in 2020. Uh, And then the IRS says, if you do this, you've already done it. you should really amend your cafeteria plan, to reflect what you've done, give it the retroactive effective date and amend that plan by the end of 2021. Uh, this I kind of find a little bit humorous. I just imagine uh, our clients sitting there in late November of 2021. Uh, deciding whether they are going to spend the time and money now to amend their plan to reflect what they did a year ago and <laughs> can no longer do.
0: Um,
1: but if, if the IRS were in the room with us, they would say, we need to amend the cafeteria plan by the end of 2021, and we'll have a model amendment for that if you'd like to take advantage of that. Next slide. And now That's back great. to Mark Holloway, who will talk about uh, change, Mark, and the rules related to coverage of over-the-counter medicines and supplies.
0: Yeah, next slide please. And this is an example of Congress giveth, Congress take taketh away that, I mean, we've flip flopped over the years on this issue about what, whether over the counter medicines and supplies can be uh, reimbursed through pre-tax accounts like HSAs, FSAs, and HRAs. Um, the good news is that we're back to what was the old rule before uh, ACA was passed, that individuals can use those accounts now. Uh, to purchase over-the-counter drugs and menstrual products, which was a uh, recent change. And the deal on this is, this is effective all the way back to 1-1 of this year. The change is permanent. Um, for those of you that have a locked-in or HUSH Section 125 plan, we have a model amendment uh, that we can make available to you for that. So if you want to do this, allow for you probably, you likely need to Amend your plan unless it now uh, allows for unless it currently allows for reimbursement of over-the-counter medicines and supplies. And Suzanne, you're up on
2: 5500s. Great. Next, please, Aaron. So everyone is providing accommodations and flexibility for lots of things, but what about those pesky 5500s? And um, not not real exciting news here, um, as everyone here knows. 5500s 5, have to be filed for welfare plans with 100 or more participants at the beginning of the plan year and then most employers also take advantage of the extension. Um, until October. And nothing changes with that. But if you're a calendar year plan, there is no relief available to you. If you happen to be a non-calendar year plan um, and your deadline fall, fell between April 1st and July 15th, then you did get a little bit of a reprieve until mid-July. Um, and there's an example there on the right that kind of walks through how that plays out. But for a calendar year plan, nothing too excited to, to get too excited about. So I'm going to hand it back to Ed to help us understand and the IRS
1: accommodations for FSA. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. Uh, next slide, Erin. Uh, the IRS in the, in the same uh, set of guidance that talked about the cafeteria plan and election change accommodations gave us some additional flexibility for flexible spending accounts. Uh, health FSAs, dependent care FSAs, by the way, are allowed, as I suspect you know, to have what's called a grace period for two and a half months after the close of that uh, FSA plan year or coverage period. Um, And uh, what happens is for that two and a half months, the uh, employee can incur additional claims and have those claims paid from residual or leftover assets from the prior plan year. So the classic example, plan year ends, FSA year ends uh, December 31st, 2019, the first period in place for two and a half months to March 15, 2020, the employee has uh, 140 bucks left over in his health FSA uh, at the end of 2019, you can incur additional claims uh, for those two and a half months in 2020, and have them paid from that residual balance. Old the older rule was that re- residual balance was forfeited you know, on January the first. So that was pretty nice. The IRS said uh, for this year, because of the coronavirus, if you want employer, you can amend your uh, FSA to extend that grace period all the way out to December 31st. So you basically for a calendar FSA, you basically give them. Uh, a full year to incur additional claims and have those applied against any residual 2019 uh, assets. A little danger if you're installing an HSA compatible high deductible plan in 2020, um, employees with even a dollar left over, uh, carried over to a grace period are frozen out of making HSA contributions until the grace period ends. So if you extend the grace period deeper in 2020, you're just freezing out the ability to make HSA contributions farther and further. Um, rather than extend that grace period to 12 2020 why not do it until 11 2020 uh, the 30th of November? Because there's a quirky little rule in the HSA world that says if the employee is HSA-eligible, can make contributions uh, on December 1, they're deemed to be eligible for the entire year, you can make the full full year, full year's uh, uh, contribution. So that might be a nice little way out of that potential wrinkle there. Next slide. If you don't have a grace period under your uh, health FSA, you can have what's called a carryover. Again, this is optional. Employers can put this in or not. Carryover allows the employee to carry over up to five hundred dollars. Uh, in residual leftover balances from the prior year into the next year, the whole next year. It's as though that residual balance is just added to their New Year's uh, FSA benefit election. Um, Now, again, when you do this, this freezes you out of the ability to make HSA contributions unless the carryover amounts are limited to things like dental invasion or, or, or preventive care expenses. The IRS limited these carryovers to 500 bucks, and it was limited for a number of years. They've made their first inflation uh, adjustment to this $500, and they've taken it to $550 for carryovers from 2020. So this would be carryovers into 2021. From 2020 can now be $550. Uh, next slide. Um, a little, it's probably no longer terribly relevant. I thought it was pretty interesting back in uh, June or July when the IRS announced this. The IRS actually said, look, if you want employer, you can allow an employee to opt into your health FSA now in the middle of 2020, and you can make the coverage effective back to January 1. So the FSA can reimburse claims incurred on or after January 1, 2020 retroactively. Now, the, the employee, say, elects $1,000 uh, for the FSA benefit, here, maybe in, uh, here in uh, September. They've got to fund the $1,000 over the remaining payroll periods in 2020. So, you know, a decent payroll deduction. But if you wanted to allow them to do that, they can do it. And if you want to allow them to have that retroactive uh, eligibility or coverage, you can do that uh, too. Mark, there's some HSA-related changes uh, in the COVID uh, uh, legislation and guidance.
0: Yes, and it's all good news. Candy and flowers here on HSA. Next. Um, The first bit of good news is that, as you you folks may be aware, generally the rule is you cannot have any first-dollar coverage uh, payable um, unless it's preventive care, uh, without potentially messing up uh, employees HSAs, meaning that if there's first dollar coverage other than dental vision or preventive care, it can disqualify uh, employees from contributing uh, to their HSAs. The good news is that until the end of next year, 2021, uh, there is this rule where you can offer, uh, telemed services at reduced or no cost without, um, creating any HSA compatibility issues. And as noted there, um, prior to this rule going into effect, generally the deal was you had to charge the fair market value of the telehealth visit in order to uh, preserve HSA eligibility. But again, we've got to fix uh, through the end of next year. Uh, the other bit of good news is if you want to and have a HSA compatible high deductible health plan, um, you can pay for a COVID treatment below the, the high deductible. And again, absent this rule, that would be a problem, with they should uh, compatibility. Um, again, uh, we have a fix there. This applies to uh, expenses incurred on or after uh, January 1 of 2020. Uh, as noted on the slide, there are, some, there are some insurers out there that voluntarily started covering treatment, and no cost sharing, a lot of them uh, have rescinded the accommodation uh, at this point. Uh, So, Suzanne, you are next up on premium grace periods.
2: Thanks, Mark. So, next slide, please. I'm um, going to run through this pretty quickly because I think many of you have these types of questions and issues in your rear view mirror at this point, but just a couple things wanted to highlight. Um, you know, back in the spring when it became apparent that coronavirus was here for a while and would be affecting businesses, many states decided to pass guidance uh, directing issuers to show some leniency on premiums and offer temporary premium grade periods to employers. So these directives either suggested or as strongly as mandated carriers to provide between 30 and 90 day grace periods, depending on the state. And during that time, even though you weren't paying your premiums, your benefits weren't also were gonna be cut off, which was very important in a pandemic. So some of the orders um, mandated that claims need to be paid during the grace period rather than pended. Um, In other states, the guidance directed issuers uh, to even extend these provisions to other lines of coverage um, outside of health insurance. So next slide please. Um and even even in states that did not have these kind of directives, some insurers were stepping up to the plate and offering flexibilities to their employers. And for many, this was really a lifeline during this very challenging time to ensure benefits remained for like furloughed employees um and and uh, unless of course the plan was terminated. Next slide, please. So there are a couple things to keep in mind here, and if you are not in the unfortunate position of having to worry about premiums, but you're offered a delayed premium deal, there are a lot of good reasons not to take it. Um, so real quick, orissa or lesson here that you all know, but employee contributions are always plan assets. So, holding on to these longer than the DOL permits under their safe harbor rules creates a prohibited transaction. And so that DOL safe harbor rule requires employers to segregate those employee contributions from the employer's general assets as soon as administratively possible, but absolutely no longer than 90 days. So, if you don't, segregate those then the employer could owe interest on the on the, the participant contributions and penalties to the DOL up to 20% of the amount involved and not only that the fiduciaries could be held personally liable for taking these missteps So definitely don't want to hold on to employee contributions too long. Otherwise, there's, you know, those issues and trust issues. So um, maybe not a good idea. And even if you're a plan that doesn't take employee contributions, which they do still exist in some places um, you could still be on the hook. If your promised benefits under the plan are not paid, if you don't hold up those promises, essentially, you'd be providing illusory coverage to people and DOL frowns upon that. And if P. Particularly if participants are, you know, left holding the claims, bills in their in their lap, that that is particularly um unsympathetic to the of. Next slide, please. So, if you're not in this horrible position of having to decide between premiums and light bills, um, there are some better options. So, one of those being, you know, if you're offered a premium forbearance, then you could pass that on to the employee and just say, hey, for these. 3 months, whatever uh, employees don't have to contribute and that eliminates your plan asset issue. I mean, you're still on the hook for the promised benefit, but but at least it's 1 less thing to worry about another option. If the carrier, ex- you could ask them to accept a partial payment. Um, and that partial payment on premiums would just be the employee portion. And of course, if you do that, you're going to want to get assurances from the insurer that, you know, they're not going to retroactively terminate your coverage. Um, and, you know, that once you submit the rest of your employee or portion of the premium, then they'll, they'll um, make sure it, it, it's in place. And this could give the, the employer some financial breathing room if they have those challenges. Um, And then the last option, and maybe I would think of this as the nuclear option, but employers do have autonomy to decide when to terminate a plan. So, you could terminate the plan, provide notice to the participants and return any of the unremitted premiums back to the employees. Of course, a large employer will still have some ACA concerns with that because you have to offer coverage. Otherwise, you get a, you know, IRS penalties. Um, but if employees haven't been working and you're thinking that the outcome does not look good for you as a business, then this might be the way to mitigate any of those, those damages. So, speaking of the ACA issues, I'm going to hand it to you. Ed.
1: Yeah, thanks, again. Before I jump into the ACA issues, I'm going to tee up a couple of questions um, that have come in that I can answer uh, because I've got a, a bail out of here in just a couple of seconds, uh, and then we'll take up these ACA issues. Uh, Casey asks whether all this uh, uh, COVID-related uh, testing uh, embraced by the uh, testing mandate for group health care plans needs to be ordered by a physician, or is it just the Take home tests need to be ordered by the physician. All the testing is ordered by a physician. I suppose a physician assistant, you know, operating under uh, the direction of a physician, that would work too. Your insurance company or your third-party claim uh, payer—they understand you know these rules, and they're they're just going to go ahead and pay these uh, expenses with no uh, cost sharing. Does the mandate apply to self-funded plans? Uh, Nicole asks. Yes it does, both insured plans and self-funded uh, plans, whatever it's plans or uh, even non-ERISA plans. Um, uh, oh, uh, uh, Zara uh, asks whether it's possible under the IRS uh, cafeteria plan FSA accommodation to roll residual DECAP or Dependent Care FSA funds into a health care FSA uh no <laughs> that's not that's not not kosher anyway look if you if you want to do it and your fsa administrator will let you do it uh you you probably have a better chance of being struck by lightning and eaten by a polar bear today than the irs Rolling in and looking at that, but uh, we can't tell you that it, it's okay. Uh, and Mary asks, where can I obtain Lockton's model cap 3 plan? Send the check. Uh, payable to Edward Fensholtz. <laughs> no, um, we have the model amendment uh, in draft form. We're working on it with Hush. Of course, we have a lot of time uh, to get that thing signed up, you know, really about another 15 months, but we'll finalize that here real shortly and have that available through your Lockton account service team. Okay, Aaron, uh, ACA-related issues. Next slide. Yeah, we've talked about this back when furloughs first began, you know, in, in April and May and June. Uh, watch for the impact of furloughs. The real challenge here, guys, is, is if your group healthcare plan, if it hardwires, and it probably does, if it hardwires uh, group healthcare plan eligibility, to ACA full-time status. So. If you're an ACA full time employee, you know, you're averaging 30 hours a week over the prior measurement period, you're in. If you didn't, you're out. Um, And that kind of worked okay in the non COVID environment. Here, if you had layoffs or furloughs, you've got a bunch of employees who may be coming back now or become actually um, who have a bunch of uh, unpaid hours in 2020, and those don't count in the measurement period uh, for their ACA full time status. For next year, and so you may have a whole bunch of employees. One of the terms of your plan don't qualify for coverage in 2021, but you want them to have coverage. And there are ways you can fix that. You can give you can amend your plan to provide some deemed credit for those unpaid hours when they are on furlough. You want to clear that with your reinsurer if you, you have a self-funded plan. Um, uh things like that, and we've got model amendments for that uh, as well. Um, Watch for these returns from layoffs. And by layoff, I mean an employment termination and then a rehire. That employee comes back in fewer than 13 weeks for ACA purposes. They step right back into the shoes that they were in when they left. That is, you can't treat them like a newly hired employee for ACA purposes. But if they're gone for more than 13 weeks, it's a 26-week threshold for educational organizations, by the way, Um, uh, then you can. You can treat them like a newly hired employee for ACA uh, purposes. Big important point here: ACA reporting for this year is going to be a hassle, especially if you've had furloughs or layoffs. It'll be a real hassle to get the data right. Um, here's why I mentioned this: You really need this year more than any other year to date. Need to double check the math, double check the work of your ACA reporting vendor. An IRS internal audit uh, audit report issued last summer. Uh, the IRS's internal auditors took issue with the service for not being harder on employees—I'm sorry, employers—and assessing penalties for submitting incorrect ACA filings. Incorrect ACA filings are legion; they're all over the place, and we've uh, spent a lot of time at Lockton um, helping get helping get employer-mandated penalties rescinded for employers because their ACA filings were wrong. ACA filings suggested they owed money when they really didn't. The, the, the IRS may rescind those penalties, but they can fine you as an employer for having submitted incorrect filings in the first place. Filing you for having submitted incorrect filing, or fining you for incorrect filings in the first place. So, uh, And they're going to get tougher on this. That uh, They've been called to task by their own internal auditors on this. So this year, more than any other, please check the math of your ACA reporting uh, vendor. Uh, Next slide. There's a whole lot of tax credit goodness, Mark, going on in this uh, COVID-related legislation. Tell us about that.
0: Just one final thought on the ACA reporting thing. This is a plug for Rory and my webcast in December. Um, Realize that there are a bunch of states out there that now require ACA reporting. California is one of them. So if you have employees in California, you're going to have to make arrangements uh, for 2020 to make sure that the uh, the tax folks in, in uh, Sacramento get a copy of those 1095-C form. Next slide here on um, ERC, FICRA, and the like. Um, one thing just to note here, I'm going uh, and, and to touch on this very briefly because this is a topic that we've, quite frankly, beaten to death uh, in some of the prior webcasts, and we've done alerts on it and everything else. Uh, the long and short of it is here is if you're subject to, uh, any of the three federal stimulus programs noted on the slide, Families First Coronavirus Response Act, that's for employers generally with fewer than 500. If you're taking the employee retention credit or you have a loan under the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, in each of those, uh, stimulus programs, you, you, the employer can get reimbursed, uh, for your health plan, your health plan costs, um, and it's noted on the slide, that these are called qualified health plan expenses under FICRA and ERC. Uh, and a slightly different definition under the Paycheck Protection Program. Next slide, please. Um, this is just lifted out of one of the alerts that we did on this. I think it was a May 4th alert. Um, just realize that for the first two programs, FICRA and ERC, uh, you recover your qualified health plan costs. Uh, When you file your quarterly um, tax return, your Form 941, it's a little bit different with PPP that I think you take care of that uh, on the loan forgiveness application. But again, um, if you've got questions or comments on that, we've written and discussed it uh, extensively, and we'd be happy uh, to get you more information on that. So, I think that brings us to the end of uh, the presentation portion of the webcast here. Uh, and it's noted um, two minutes ago. Ed had to uh, run off. Uh, he left us. He had a, he had another commitment uh, at, at three o'clock central time. Uh, what I would propose here is, um, in the five or so minutes uh, we have left here, um, I don't know, Suzanne, how you how you want to do this. I mean, I'm happy. Um, why don't I do this? I'll let you. Well, no. I'll do. I'll grab some questions here. If you have specific, if there's specific questions you want to uh, address, um, I'll, I'll give the microphone over to you and just um, grab a couple questions that you're comfortable with and I'll take some and then we'll call it a day.
2: That's great. Um, let you catch your breath here a second. I did get a question. Question was uh, talking about the premium credits um if we've been invoicing furloughed employees and they've been submitting payment are we affected by any of the ERISA rules I talked about? Um, so thank you, Christine, for your your question. The answer is, you know, it depends on how you're doing it. So one thing to think about, if you're invoicing participants, it sounds like you're not collecting money until some later date. So remember, the key to to, to the ERISA concerns is making sure you're not holding on to employee contributions beyond 90 days. And secondly, making sure that coverage is still in place during that time. So, you know, during that furlough period, you're probably picking up the tab with the issuers, or you have a a concession with them. But the idea is making sure coverage is still in place and and you're not holding on to those premiums. I'm just going to grab a
0: a few of the questions here. Um, One, I guess just a reminder to folks, I I think I alluded to this before we ducked off. Um, You can't move money between a health FSA and a dependent care FSA. You can't move that money back and forth, That you can't roll uh, roll back and forth. Uh, the other thing, just to, to clarify, that for F- the health FSA, you can either have a 500 or $550 carryover or a two and a half month grace period, not both. Uh, it's an either or thing. It's not re- Either one isn't required, but again, if you have one, uh, you can't you can't have uh, can't have the other. To
2: piggyback onto that. There's another question about clarifying the grace period from the runoff period. So these two are different things. So your grace period is time that extends beyond the end of the plan year to incur claims and get submission. But a runoff period is a you know you can't incur new claims, but you have a, a time period where you can still submit old claims, right? Yep. right. There was some confusion about that.
0: All right, uh, I'm going to take uh, three questions here on COBRA. These are, these are the last ones I'm going to address. Uh, Suzanne, I'll turn the microphone over to you. Um, I'll say what we said before on the webcast. If we, if we did not answer your specific question, uh, please get it to your account team and they'll get it, get it in front of one of us lawyers uh, and we'll, we'll get, get you a response. Um, one question on the examples I gave on the uh, freezing the deadlines. If Joe uh, waited to elect COBRA in March of 2021, would he be required to pay premiums back to April 2020? Or can he choose which which month he wants his COBRA uh, to begin? Uh, The answer to that is no, there is no choice that uh, essentially what what the way COBRA works is, you know, you pay for the 1st month that you're owed premium. So, if a check were to show up, to the plan uh, to the plan, they would apply that towards your April 2020 premium. And then consecutively after that, so the, the way the rules work is you can't pick and choose which month you want your premium check allocated to. For example, if you wanted um, your co- you wanted, if you wanted a Cobra for June of 2020, you would have to send a check for April, May and June uh, in order uh, in order for your June uh, Cobra to stay in effect. Um, If someone elects COBRA, but doesn't make the 1st payment, are we required to turn on the coverage? Um, A couple observations there. 1 would be if we're talking about this during the outbreak period and the payment was due during the outbreak period. um, You're only required to turn the coverage on if after the outbreak period is over with um, the employee timely pays their COBRA premium. If they never pay or pay late, uh, after the, after the um, outbreak period ends, you don't have to turn uh, the coverage uh, coverage back on. And I think that's it for me. So, Suzanne, anything you want to address?
2: No, I, th- I think uh, that's all the questions that came in here, so um, we're good.
0: All right, good. Um, just want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, again, if we did not get to your question, send it to your account team. Um, I would put a shameless plug in for our, for our next webcast in October. Uh, but I forget what that is. Do you know off the top of your head, Suzanne? I, I don't know. I'm sure it'll be the, it'll be the world's best webcast on whatever topic it is. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So check your calendars. You've got these, um, obviously bleeding on into the fall months here. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Suzanne. And I hope everyone has a great afternoon.
2: Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.